It's Dr. Stu's podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, write a nice review, give five stars to Dr. Stu's podcast. Nice to see you as always, my friend. How are you, Brian? I am well. I have to initially respond to a challenge. Before you do that, I just want to say that I just wanted to make a note that all is right with the world today because two things are happening. One is Randy's cat, Jamie, is curled up next to you on, on, the, on the bed. It's the cutest thing I think I've seen And I'm in a scared long to death time. of cats, by the way. Oh, she's just adorable. And But it, me being here or something. Do you know, do you know what's, what's opening this week? Thor. That's correct. The Dark, the dark World. world. <laughs> right. So I tell you, all's right with the world because our Thor music has uh, inspired me. We're going to try. I think the boys and I tend to go to the midnight showing. I don't know if we can go this week because we'll be just coming home from the Kings game. There's a lot of a lot of important medical stuff going on in my life right now. Between, of course, between the Kings and uh, Thor and uh, Kitties and right and your <laughs> podcast. I'm trying to get you to be radical uh, and, and go see, go to a Kings game, and then go straight from the Staples Center to the arc light and see the opening of Thor at midnight. That's and, too and, much excitement. And get home at like 3.30 in the morning. And you know what you should do on the way home? Smoke a little weed. No, get some uh, McDonald's. On the way no, home. jack-in-the-box munchy meal. <laughs> yep, and then and then <laughs> okay. I can drive with my kids and I can listen to Dr. Stu's podcast. You can do that. By the way, do, do your kids, <laughs> are they fans of Dr. Stu's podcast? Uh, or has their whole life sort of been like an episode of Dr. Stu's yeah, podcast? Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, you know what? They're, they're not uh, they're they're like not We hear enough it. of this in person, Dad. It's not interact. That's exactly what my daughter would say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to listen. She'd say, I know exactly what he's going to say. Well, I love when you told me you, you were talking to your daughter and you said to Maddie, you said to her, do you believe, or you asked her, you said, do you believe I have wisdom? You shared that with us on one show, and, 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 uh, and I think she said yes. And then you asked her, do you have more wisdom than you had 10 years ago? And she said, well, of course. I, I, I like right, that. Yeah, because we she was, always seems like she knows everything. Well, she has to. This, she's, a, she's, a, she's a young woman, and you're her dad. Yes, and Brian, I, I'm, I'm really impressed with your memory, by the way. Do you remember that story? You do remember. You have a very sharp memory because you remember a lot of stuff that you, you pull it out, and, you, and you're really quick to pull it out. So, I'll, again, I want to praise my, my host, Brian Whitman. Oh, please, Dr. Stu, please. It's I, so generous of you. Please. I also want to salute my two twins, Andy and Alex. Yep who on Monday, uh, November 11th, will be celebrating their 21st birthday. Wow, how did that happen? And we are going to... Uh, at, uh, I mean, I know how it happened, but... Their mom and I right. are taking Andy and Alex out at 12.01 p.m. or a.m. on Sunday night. We're going to go to the local pub. If we can find anything open in Westlake at, oh, no. uh, okay. at 12.01, and we're going to ha- buy them their first drink. You know, We're actually going to let them go up to the bar and order their first drink. See, isn't that fun? Uh, uh, my friend, and I know you, and, 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 and you know Dennis Prager as well, he has talked about, since you brought it up, so, so the boys will be 21 and they're going to go have a drink. Well, we know they're going to do it anyway. So this is it, right? You take the stigma off of it. You know, their first time at the bar is going to be with you guys. They'll be comfortable in that environment. And it takes sort of the stigma or the temptation from a young person away from sort of trying to do this on the sly. Yeah. It's a yeah. responsible thing to do. My family did a similar thing. When I turned 18, my dad took me to a strip club. Oh, how weird. Oh, why, why is it's that not, weird? It's not a similar thing. That's very similar. It's you know, no, do this it's in a responsible not, it's, no, way. Not, it's not everybody drink. <laughs> you know, everybody drinks when they're a teenager. Not everybody goes to a strip club. Well, with your father? 
know. It was a bonding moment. Yeah. The, let me tell you, my father is in heaven. The last thing I would have ever done with my dad when he was here living his earthly life is go to a strip bar. He gave with me $100 dad. for lap dances. And it you was know, so sweet. You know what, oh, though, Brian? So weird. I, I, actually, it is weird, but I actually, I actually can see the point. You know, I wouldn't do that with my kids, but I can see where a parent might think that that was something that's a father son okay. kind of thing. Yeah, I came out of the room. He said, "You see her boobies." I said, "Yeah." Oh yeah. God. Well, you know, I mean, you know, when when when, it, when the Is that fa- a true story, by the way. Yes, that's a true. When story. Randy's father found all those magazines under his mattress, he figured he might as well take them and show him the real thing. Well, I guess you know, there's something about that. I used to get with my dad. I would be if my dad would, you know, my dad would come and visit me in in L.A. Right. We'd be driving down Ventura Boulevard and he'd see, you know, like a real California girl to coin a phrase. And he might say something. My parents were married. They were, I think, had a very happy marriage. They were fine. But my dad might say, oh, you know, look at that. And I, in my mind, I'd say, please don't do that. Dad. Please, Dad. I don't want to view you in any way at all as a sexual being. Please don't respond to a hot girl we see from the car. You're my father. I saw it. You saw it. Let's talk about hardware or something. Oh, yeah, my daughter, my daughter was, would be 10 times that extreme about, ooh, you know, the, ew, your dad. Right. Dad, what are you doing? Dad. Now, my boys, when, you know, when we go out or we go to the Kings game and stuff, I mean, there's a lot of women who dress really sure uh, uh, provocatively at the Kings game. Will and, you make... And it's, you know, you can't, you can't not look. And, right. you know, they're walking up the aisle and it's you're right sitting in right front next of to you. the aisle and it's, it's right in front of you. Right. Or they're up on the Jumbotron because it's <laughs> it's flex cam or kiss cam or dance cam. Right. Or That's always fun. Every, every, every fucking thing cam. <laughs> I just wish, they, I wish they'd have a timeout at the Kings game where they weren't having any music playing or anything and people could just sort of pay attention to the game. Right. We, we could be losing by... By three goals, and people are standing up and cheering because they're doing dance cam. It's like, wait, we're losing. Right. We're losing. They need to know you didn't come here for any dumb camera or jumbotron. No, or to watch Trolley beat Chewy Lemonhead in a, in a race around the thing twice around Staples Center. Oh, I mean, it's enough the of that time shows are so bad. Oh, God. That's very funny. Now, I told you on the last podcast that I was going to dig up a supporter of Obamacare and bring that person oh, no. to Dr. Stu's podcast. Well, try and try and try as I may i was unsuccessful in finding a willing participant to come and speak about the virtues of obamacare i can speak about them sort of as i like to say on the radio in spirit in spirit i support obamacare well what does that mean well i I, thank you for asking here's what i think it means 30 million people didn't have health insurance and Leaders in our country, politicians, call them what you will. Didn't, didn't 30 million people just lose their health insurance? About 17 million just lost their health insurance. <laughs> All right, insurance. so 13, okay, you, know, you run the numbers on your All own right, time. Okay. It, to me, it seemed like the spirit of that, the spirit of doing something for the uninsured was a very noble and honorable pursuit to pursue if that's redundant, but isn't it? Was it? Isn't that? Wasn't? Isn't that a noble idea to try to provide for the uninsured insurance so, they so can afford? Let me ask you it's a question, a- Brian. Are you in favor of of the the team that finishes last in the, in AYSO soccer getting a, a trophy? No. Okay. So there tro- are losers in the world, and there are people that don't have. You know, you can't legislate equality you know you can legislate equality of opportunity but you can't legislate equality of outcome and if you're saying that there were 30 million people 
without health insurance. Right. Doing my math, that means there are about 310 million people, excuse me, about 280 million people that had health insurance. So why on heaven's earth do you think it's not overly paternalistic, overly leftist, you know, the dogma to say, okay, well, it's not working for 10% of people, so let's throw out what's working for the other 90% and reinvent it all, rather than having a program right. to take care of the 10% of people. Yeah, look, I think this is, the con- this is the national conversation that's being had. And to answer your question, I, don't, I, would never, I never supported the idea of taking insurance away from people who had it. I have always supported as an adult person or even a sort of politically-minded teenager, I always supported the idea of having an option available to people who were uninsured, but not taking from people a program that they have that exists now, uh, you, you know, you, that is working for no, them. No, I understand. You say there's a national conversation going on about this right now. Just to be clear for me and my listeners, yeah. define conversation as, <laughs> as, as Brian Whitman understands it, because to me, well, it's a, national a shouting conversation is where two people talk to each other right. mm. civilly. You and I have conversations. Or someone tries to have some kind of solution for the problem, not just blaming everybody. Right. Blaming, lying, deceit, uh, misdirection. This is not a conversation in the terms, you know, they always talk about that. Let's have a conversation. You know, let's, let's form a committee. Let's have a panel. Let's, let's put together an investigation. I mean, how many investigations are going on in Congress all the time? Well, it, it drives me crazy. And nothing ever happens because the news... People lose interest. The news cycle fades away. Well, then let me ask you, Doctor Stewart. Let's get in the time. No, wait, machine. wait, wait! You didn't answer the question, though, Brian. Define your uh, your uh, my leftist friend, my yeah. my liberal friend. You're not leftist. Define uh, what conversation means to you. I think I think uh, I think you did it a back and forth civil dialogue. And you're right. We're having a national shouting match about health care. We're not having a national conversation about it. I think you're right about that. We sh- and we shouldn't we have had a national conversation about it? Well, this is before it was shoveled down our throats well, in is, 2009. Is, look, nobody, uh, no one. Uh, would have a perspective on the problem, the, the, the problems that the healthcare system had than Dr. Stu, a doctor, or somebody who was uh, unfortunately had to be a patient for a long time would have a very unique perspective on the healthcare situation. Yeah, so like let's the, go back what? in time to before Obamacare. If, if, if the president had called you and said, doctor, or emailed at askdrstu at gmail.com, and it emailed to Dr. Stu, what do I do about the uninsured? What do we do? You would have said in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in an encapsulated well, asked, form. You've asked me this many times before, Brian. And there, look, there are simple solutions, small increments that you could do one at a time. Okay, you could you could indemnify physicians to take care of people for free if they couldn't be sued. You could you could have insurance being sold across state lines. You could have tort reform, which is what I sort of implied just before. Sure. You could also do things like health savings accounts, where people could could uh, save their own money uh, tax-deferred or tax-free to, to spend on health care as they saw fit. Yeah, that was a big George Bush thing, those health savings accounts. He well, used to talk about right, that. That's the plan I have. They're basically out the door now. They're, they're not going to meet with Obamacare standards. That's the plan I used to have. Or, you know, they're not going to meet the standards of yeah. Obamacare. So you're gonna, the people who are going to have health savings accounts probably going to lose those as well, or they're going to find a way to tax that money that you already have in there because the government's going to need it to pay for the, the miserable failings of the health. But I'm just saying, Brian, again, for those 30 million people, if that's the number we're going to use, they're... There's there's a way. I mean, they find they find social programs. You got you got food stamps for 47 million people who are hungry. So why not give a government subsidy or something? Again, you're be ta- you're redistributing wealth, but I guess that's going to happen if you want to be fair 
according to the the definition of fairness, it's not my definition of fairness, but it is the democratic definition of fairness, is to take money from people who have and give it to people who haven't. But you could do those sorts of things without having to have destroyed. I mean, you read the Wall Street Journal article recently about the poor woman who has cancer in Southern California. Yeah, this is really- Why don't you explain that a little bit to the listener? I will, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I think it's a great example here in this conversation that we're having about health care and, and Obamacare and affordable health care for folks or with the situation we have here. Uh, there was a woman, uh, there is a woman who uh, has cancer and she goes to UCSD, uh, University of California, San Diego, U- UCSD Medical Center. Those are her regular routine doctors because that's where she lives. Right. And then she goes to a cancer, uh, I forget, forget she went the to surgeons facility. up in Stanford. Right. In Stanford. Right. And she takes, uh, she gets cancer treatments occasionally at MD Anderson. Right. Which is in Houston, Texas. Okay. Right. So uh, she, she is now uh, in a very personal story is saying that she now has to choose uh, between, uh, you know, having one or the other because her healthcare provider sent her a letter and said things are changing and and we, and these are the new standards. And, uh, and look, that is a very real example that any reasonable person with a heart, any person with a beating heart would have to stop and look at that and say, okay, this woman is, a, is sick. She's not winning this legislation. This, this program is not winning for her. This is bad. This needs to be fixed. A teachable moment, to coin a phrase. Well, if you're talking about the 30, you know, you had 30 million people who you said was unfair, they didn't have health insurance. And now you're going to take people and you're going to, you're going to have stories like this. And maybe not 30 million stories like this woman, but you're going to have many stories like, so all you've done is you've traded one unfairness for another unfairness. How does that solve anything? Well, I'm look, I, I, it's a fair question, and I think it is the question. And uh, right, can you legislate fairness? I mean, I guess really you can't do that. But at the same time, I always wanted, and, I th- and that's why I'm angry. As an Obama supporter, I voted for the president. I've liked the idea of some sort of national uh, health care insurance option being available to people who don't have health insurance. I've supported the, that theory for as far back as I can remember. Isn't that not even in the bill, though? There is no public option. Right. Obama dropped it. That was one of the early bargaining chips for Obama. And he dropped the the bargaining chip of a public option. Dropped that early on. A a single payer option, rather. Yeah. Well, you know, Brian, it's just it's one of those things where if you have to pass a bill based on deceit, based on misinformation, based on lying, I guess they all fall into the same category. Uh, based on false uh, representations, fake numbers. I mean, wasn't it supposed to cost nine hundred billion, and now it's up to two point five trillion or something like that? Yeah, the price like is that. going up. Uh, you know, they they That's passed every it, government deal. They passed it on false pre- pretenses. And by the way, do you really think it's going to end at two point five trillion? No, of course not. No, and who's going to pay this bill? Again, we're back to that same discussion we've had many times, where we have a na- uh, the the national debt is crushing, and it's crushing. You know, I, I, I saw a baby yesterday, a newborn mm-hmm. baby, yeah. and I, I, that I delivered about six weeks ago. She came in for a postpartum visit. How is we, she doing? Well? They're doing great. And we, were, we were having a conversation, and we got off, and she asked me, you asked me how it affects me sometimes, does it affect me directly? She asked me questions about what I thought about Obamacare, and I looked at her baby, and I said, by the way, you owe $58,000 to the government. Right. And by the end of the conversation, 30 minutes later, I said, you now owe $58,300 to the government. Okay? (laughs) Because the price keeps going up. Right. And it's not going to stop. And how is this going to end? You know, here's the one thing about Dr. Stewart. Compassion is one thing. But compassion without reason is is foolhardy. Mm. 
something uh, I, I love the idea. Dr. Stu, he takes that time. He says all the time. We t- Randy talked about, you know, having 45 seconds with his doctor at Kaiser. Dr. Stu, sometimes <laughs> we'll talk 45 minutes, talk for an hour about a, a condition or, uh, you know, a, 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 an issue. Any, any question that needs to be answered at the time, I try to I try to do it. That's why I, I book my patients with a. A, lo- a big distance apart, which I could never do. That's what I was going to say. What if about I, that person I, sitting on that crinkly uh, uh, paper? Yeah, right. I hate that crinkly paper in the doctor's office. Well, I hate it. But I could never do that if I had to do volume practice, which is what people who sign up for these HMOs or these these insurance exchanges are going to have to do in order to make a living. You can't do it. It's yeah, they got to see what fifty patients a day now. Yeah, you don't have time to talk to your patients in a in a sane manner you don't have time to answer their questions which by the way brings me up brings me a, a point that i wanted to, to make yesterday last night um once a month every first monday of the month at the sanctuary birth and family wellness center we have a, a community lecture where we open it up for free to people to, for couples to come and hear about their options oh, it's that's called, a cool idea it's called nervous anticipation and we talk about we go around the room we introduce ourselves we go around the room we hear the stories of people that are there and then we try to spend the next hour hour and a half going over and answering questions and talking about choices and options it isn't a pro home birth thing it isn't a is it an anti-hospital isn't pro hospital it isn't pro epidural anti-epidural it's really about giving information Mm. we usually have a chiropractor we have me we have a midwife yesterday we had anna getty there who runs the pregnancy awareness month she's wonderful uh, uh, information that she has to give out and people should look into it. You should go to Pregnancy Awareness Month on Facebook and take a look at the site. Cool. And every May, they have a big thing in Santa Monica, California. Anyway, one of the people asked me yesterday. They didn't ask me. They were telling their story. And they, they, she's a previous cesarean section, and she had tears. We had to get out the Kleenex as she's re- recounting her story. And it was really one of these stories where she sort of got induced when she really didn't need to be induced. And she ended up with a cesarean section, and she wants to do a VBAC this time. And she's seeing a different doctor. And the doctor tells her that she's supportive of VBAC, okay? Not knowing what that means, but the doctor also says, but let's just schedule you for a C-section just in case. Oh, that's a very mixed signal. Uh, Right. Well, first of all, not only is it a mixed signal to tell somebody I'm supportive of VBAC, but let's schedule a C-section, but my question to her was, okay, well, if she wants to do a C-section on you, was she going to wait till 42 weeks and see if you went into labor first? She said, no, she wanted to schedule it just after the 39th week. Hmm. So in other words, my chiropractor friend Elliot says to her, so if due dates are from 37 to 42 weeks, this woman is cutting, this doctor is cutting off more than half of your odds of delivering vaginally by telling you she's going to do a C-section scheduled, but she's supportive of VBAC. I mean, what sort of message does it have? What, and, the, and the woman doesn't really even know what questions to ask, nor does she have the time because the doctor is, has one foot in the door, is going off to the next room. Right, right. And, and, and how did that turn out? How did that particular case turn out with, with this uh, woman at the sanctuary? Well, I just saw her last night. You know, and she's I, still pregnant, obviously. Well, yeah. I, and we I, don't know how this we is. We hope that she's seeking out other options. You know, I, I'm not afraid to be blunt. You know, we try to be... I'm not politically correct. I'm not politically correct on the Dr. Seuss podcast I know show. this. This and I know. And I'm not politically correct. I, I really want to be honest with people. I know. And I didn't even have to say anything because my friend Elliot and one of the midwives just set up, this is ridiculous. You need to look elsewhere for your care. Mm. And quite frankly, if, if, you don't, if you have fear about 
what's happening in the, with your physician. If you don't have trust in your physician, if your physician doesn't have time to answer your questions, if your physician rolls his or her eyes when you bring out your birth plan or you talk about a doula, uh, it's time to find another physician. I and, can't imagine that. Or a midwife, preferably a midwife, quite frankly. I'm 41, and obviously I've never been pregnant, but I, I mean, in, in my... Are you planning to be? No. In my interactions with, with doctors, I can't imagine a doctor ever rolling his or her eyes at me. I mean, I think I would just leave the office and say, I'm never coming back. I mean, I told you the story about the psychiatrist who broke up with me. We, you've heard that story. Brian, all you have to do, all you have to do is follow. Yeah, you've, you've said that story. And, right. And, and it's funny. Well, yeah. But it's, but again, the, the they doctor, turned me away. Yeah, but the doctor never rolled his eyes at you because the doctor didn't even have the courage to speak to you directly. Correct. He sent Richard, the office manager, Correct. out to tell me that my relationship was over. The doctor would not be giving me treatment anymore or therapy uh, because uh, the doctor thought I I wasn't taking my treatment seriously and he said you know it's going to be painful the end of this relationship i said get out of here. oh boy you know i don't really understand the the mindset of my colleagues who say these things how do you how do they do they i mean the question is do they actually believe what they're saying is good medicine or do they know that what they're saying is bullshit and they say it anyway because they don't want to take the time to deal with it. Is it possible they don't even know the answer to that question? Is that possible? Is it possible that somebody, and, and we've talked about informed consent before, and, and going in there and talking to clients or patients and, and giving uh, the, 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 the person who's seeing you all of the options available to her or to him with your physician, whatever the case may be, and, uh, and, and, and you have this sort of... Um, you have this, the doctor is giving you the line, the party line, sort of the medical establishment line. And we've talked in the past about whether or not the doctor really gets that he or she is giving you the line or if they actually really believe the line, but they've just rehearsed it for so long that they really even forget what it means. You know what I mean? I say things in conversations, sometimes on the radio, admittedly, right? Political debates. We have our talking points down. I'll blurt stuff out. I've said it a thousand times. Yeah, I, I and think... And I'm just doing it from repetition. I can't speak for any individual physician, but, but I can tell you that this physician who said this, um, she has to know that what she's saying is uh, incongruous. She's giving really a mixed message by saying that, and I think that she's basically paying lip service to the VBAC issue mm -hmm. because it sounds cool and makes her look better to say I support VBAC but if you support VBAC then the next words out of your mouth can't be but let's schedule your c-section just in case that's ridiculous now if she has to do that she, this woman was 30 weeks so it's 10 weeks ahead of time yeah so if she has to do that 10 weeks ahead of time because there's so many c-sections being scheduled at Cedar sinai that they can't they have to do it 10 weeks in advance is that possible I, I don't know, but okay. but that would be awful to believe that there's that many C-sections being scheduled. Right. So I don't believe that that's possible. I, I just I really believe that they don't care. I don't. I believe the physician wants to get through her day with as little issues as possible. As a physician yourself, that has to be an almost impossible thing to accept that the doctor doesn't care. Well, I would love to challenge these physicians. I would love to ask them the question. They are never challenge you you want to get out we're putting out the no they, they no one ever asked them it's kind of like the 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 um like if you're a, a liberal writer for the new york times yeah right like tommy friedman yeah sure who i grew up with yeah right we grew up in my neighborhood or like a paul krugman 
you know, they never are challenged, but they'll never go on a Republican talk show. Oh, no. I've got the Rocky music. When, when you lay the challenge down to others in the medical community to come on Dr. Stu's podcast and rock them, sock them robots and duke it out with you on these very important issues, I, I, I just think of Rocky Balboa getting ready for the fight. And you, hey. put, you put the challenge down. I love that. Yeah. I would love it. I would love. I would love it to be. Doctor uh, C doesn't like the music. That's yeah, my the music idea. Off. I can't talk over the music. All right. I would very much love to get somebody who thinks that a thirty-five percent C-section rate is a good thing to come on the show hmm. and and defend themselves. Yeah. But they will never do it. Right. They won't do it. Just like I said, those writers for the New York Times are not going to go on a conservative talk show and have to defend themselves against somebody who has logic from the other side. They just don't want to do it. And so what happens is they belittle me. Uh, I, I spoke to somebody today in the office who's from Santa Barbara, and they were looking to have a home birth, and they were talking to their physician about home birth. Yeah. And the physician said, well, I know a physician that does home birth, but, and then there was a hesitation. They're my, they, were, they were imitating what the doctor did. They hesitated and says, but I can't recommend him. All right? Now, they're talking about me. And I, and, the question is, I don't even know who this physician is. So she obviously doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. So why is she saying that? All right. right. Is she saying that because she doesn't like what I do? Is she saying that doesn't like who I am? Does she say, does, is she saying it because she heard it from someone else who heard it from someone else? Right. Who just says that this guy is a little bit radical or a little bit crazy. He's doing home V-backs and home breaches and, and this is horrible and stuff like that. Or, well, it, it, you know, but okay, come on and debate me. Come on. And let's have a meeting. I've written to several different institutions to try to establish a dialogue with them because we are going to bring transports in from home. Right. And I've written to the chairman of the departments and nothing, no response, nothing back. Or if I do get a response, it's that we'll take it up in committee and we'll get back to you. And you know what that means. And that's the black hole of right. black <laughs> hole of committees. Right, right. So you know, I want. I'd love to come and talk to the residents. I would love to come and give people a perspective. I'm open to being challenged. I can. I can defend my point, my position. Sure. And I can agree that I, this isn't for everybody, but I just can't get anybody on the other side to just even openly admit that you know there may be a room, there may be a role for this sort of thing, and and what we do maybe isn't right. Maybe telling somebody that they should schedule their C-section while I support VBAC is 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 wrong. And it would seem to me that uh, obviously we, we've talked in the past here on Dr. Stu's podcast about, uh, for example, uh, an out-of-hospital birth. There might be a, a home birth uh, or at the sanctuary, whatever it is. And, and you, have, you have shared with us uh, incidents where you had to then transport to the hospital. So obviously, um, in the medical community as a doctor, you have to have uh, a working relationship with folks who have a different opinion because sometimes you do that transport, as you said. So, so isn't it really in the best interest of the clients, of the patients, of a pregnant woman, of the baby, to have a dialogue about all of these very sensitive issues? If that were the priority for everybody, the world would be a better place. But it's not the priority of hospitals. You know, the, the well-being of the people that work there, the well-being of the clients that go there is not the priority of these people. And it's, and, it's, and it's tragic, and that's why the world, the out-of-hospital, you know, there's, there's some pettiness even in the, in the, birth, the home birth community. Sure, between, I'm sure there is. Between groups, but I will have to say something really uh, supportive and, and nurturing about the home birth world is f- four years ago in Los Angeles, five years ago in Los Angeles, there wasn't a single birth center, mm. all right? The sanctuary opened a birth center on the west side of Los Angeles, and now if I'm counting correctly in the greater metropolitan area, 
there's six or seven birth centers wow. that have all opened up in, the in last, four years. In the four years. So clearly there's a demand for this and clearly clients want this. And for those people who are hospital-based or hospital think that hospital birth is the only way to go, there's something happening here that they sure they, they how long can they continue to deny that it's happening how long they can continue to make it difficult there's no reason to make it difficult we're all supposed to be working on the same side and offering opportunity to people nobody's getting rich doing ob whether it's in the hospital or at home we do it because it's a calling because we love doing it mm. doctors who do it they used to probably love doing it i'm not sure too many doctors love ob anymore maybe the young ones do but you get you get burnt out you get tainted because of all the micromanaging, overregulation, peer review, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, legal ramifications. It, it's enough to wear people down. And so why, this, you know, why things happen like this woman, I keep going back to her, this female physician, saying to this poor woman who desperately wants a vaginal birth, it's important to her culturally, it's important to her as a woman, and the response she gets is, "Well, I support it, but let's schedule a C-section." You know, let's talk for sucks. Let's talk for a moment about that uh, the cultural sort of significance about it, because when we talk about uh, home birthing or out of hospital birthing, we've had many uh, folks who have come on Doctor Stu's podcast, been guests, and and uh, in addition to the expertise, obviously that Doctor Stu has, have talked from sort of a, uh, uh, maybe with the legal expertise about the about the issues in the legislature regarding home birthing. But let's talk about the cultural. And you said it there. That's the word you used. So. For those who might not know, for those who might be lay people, what is sort of for proponents of home birthing or out of hospital birthing, what is the cultural significance of that? Because that's a big deal. Well, the birth, birth for many, many women, prob- I mean, technically for all women in some way, is a transi- transitional experience for them. Um, you know, it defines womanhood, it defines uh, their ability to feel powerful. It, it is. It is something that should not be denied or belittled, and it is all too often. And there are many cultures where if a woman can't give birth vaginally, she's sort of ridiculed, not necessarily by the culture itself, but by, well, actually by the other women in their society. I know Still? For, in, 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 today? Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, I know, for instance, I know I have a patient from Ghana who had had three previous cesarean sections, mm-hmm. and no one would offer her a vaginal birth, and the th- three... First cesarean section was probably unnecessary. The other two were sort of, she had the misfortune of moving to Oxnard and they told her that it was not legal to have vaginal births after C-section. And so their fourth pregnancy, she wanted to have a trial of vaginal birth and obviously no hospital is going to do that. She was informed of the risks and benefits. She said, culturally, the other women tease me. Mm. They, They mock me because I have not been able to give birth the way a woman is supposed to give birth. Oh my gosh, what a horrible thing when to do she, to another person. Well, I know, it's a cultural thing and we don't understand it from our from our American perspective, but this, you know, this is her culture. Wow. And I think you see that in other other cultures too, in certain Latin cultures, uh you might see that. And for this woman to have had succeeded in having her V-back after 3 C-sections. And she did succeed. It was tra- yeah, it was trans- she had a 5-hour labor. It was a tra- it was she pushed for uh, 25 minutes. It it, it was transition it was transformative for her. Transformative is the word I'm looking Probably for. Probably very emotional for you, too. It, it's to, for me to be able to be a partake in that, to be an observer of that, to be, a, to be a, a, a vessel to hold that for her and to allow her to do her thing and to allow women to experience the, you know, a pregnancy is a time where, where a woman can, you know, even before pregnancy, when a woman is thinking about getting pregnant, if, it's, if she's planning on it, 
you know, to to cleanse your body, to prepare yourself, to eat healthier. To, it's it's life changing. You know, I, you, you talk about. Um, uh, that uh, what a what a transformative time it is uh the pregnancy and then let's talk for a moment about after the birth after you have the baby i have a friend who recently had a baby and she has had a and visits from every family member that i think she's had if you took out the family tree i think every one of them have come because they want to see the baby i understand that it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful baby too and uh but i i said to my friend i said are you exhausted? I mean, you had your baby, you know, you know, just, a, you know, maybe a few months ago. And it's just been a sort of revolving door of very well-intentioned, wonderful family members who want to come in and see the baby and see how you're doing. And they want to just kind of be around you during this period of time. And I wondered out loud to my friend, if maybe it's all too much, Dr. Stu, maybe these visits from family, visits from friends to a mom and her baby right after the birth in the in the month or two after the birth is too much for a new well, mom. Well, what did I mean is this friend of somebody that we know? Um yeah, you've met my friend but my friend would say, you know, she Yeah, would, what did, what did, what did she think about? She this? said, "Ah, you know, they mean well, but I could just tell she sort of sighed a little bit. She understands, I think, that uh that there's just been a lot of uh, a lot of attention paid and I think her feeling is she's getting too much attention. Maybe. Well, she is getting too much attention if she feels that way, because, you know, every family dynamic is different. But if she if she approached you with this complaint, then I brought it up. I brought up the complaint. Oh, OK. I put it on the table because, you know, I just blurt stuff out. OK. Right. So, you know, it, it would have been it would have been even more more impressive if she had expressed it to you and started complaining to you it would have been very obvious that this is too much. And I, and I will say that, you know, I don't want to speak to anybody's particular family dynamic, but having visitors for an hour here and there is reasonable. But maybe uh, maybe that's why hotels were invented. <laughs> so people coming from out of town don't need to be in your space for two weeks. Maybe it's offensive to your mother-in-law or to your grandparents for them not to be able to stay in your house. Right. But on the other hand, you know, you're a new family unit and you have to... It's it's not like you've just reinvented the wheel here, right? You just you just yourselves with now a third person in the household, and maybe you need that time. And and if you have a way to speak to these people so that they can respect your time, you can very much get out and say to them, "Listen, you're welcome to come, but you can't stay here." Yeah. Do you find that? Uh, do, do you in, in your many years, Doctor Stu, uh, to clients, uh, to couples? new moms and dads do you do you advise if they ask to have some alone time i remember my friend said to me she said right after they had the baby there was uh about a week of nobody visiting and and she put her foot down on that one she said nobody's coming for a week we're having mom and dad and new baby for a week in the sort of serenity of our home with our new baby and it was a calm a piece that she didn't want interrupted that early. I think that if that works for that couple, that's perfectly fine. I think if it works for another couple to have their mothers or mother-in-laws come and stay with them and they're okay with that, that's fine. I do think that there should be a golden time where it's just mom and dad. Is and that baby. right after? Is that Well, right there's after? a golden hour, we call it, right after birth, where at home births, we essentially make sure the mom's stable and then we shut the door and leave mom and dad and baby to be off by themselves. That's wonderful. Of, that's wonderful. We sort of listen. No, there's no nurses coming in. There's nobody uh, taking your baby away from you or saying we've got to do this or we've got to do that. It's just an hour 
of them together. And you guys now, call it the golden hour. It's called, well, the midwives, that's what they that's call beautiful. it. That's beautiful. That's really a very beautiful thing. And, and so I think having that sort of time at home, too, like we tell the mom, even if she's had a vaginal birth, that she should expect to go nowhere for the next two weeks. Right. She should not expect to be cooking or cleaning. She should have husband or somebody come in and help out. If people want to come and visit, they should bring food to the house. Yeah. They should do the dishes. They should do her laundry. She should be able to take it real easy with her baby. The only time when you tell people that they should go out in the first two weeks, the mom and baby, is if they have to make a trip to the pediatrician. Right. We love it when pediatricians will do home visits, and there's a few... That's beginning to happen more in Los Angeles, too. I was going to ask, too. yeah, if, if that is sort of happening more than it used to happen. Yeah, yeah, it is. Again, it's it's something where it's it's probably more costly to do it that way, and right. so some people have to pay more to do that, but ultimately it's ideal because why do the baby need to bundle up and get in a car seat and drive someplace? <clears throat> it's a production to bring a baby anywhere. Correct. So you want those first two weeks... We tell people that the, that you should probably plan on going nowhere. Yeah. You're not doing the grocery shopping. You're not doing the cleaning. You're not mowing the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And you're getting, you know, have somebody come and give you a massage. Yeah. How nice. Right. You know? Right. Have somebody come in and, and help clean the house. Do these things for yourself. If you ever wanted to spend a little money on something, those two weeks is a really good time to do it, to give yourself, your baby, and your husband or your partner a, a just a, a window of, of sanctity in your own home. I think that's wonderful. I think that's great advice. And uh, by the way, when we talk about the sanctuary, as Dr. Stu said, it is the Sanctuary Birth and Family Wellness Center. And there are links, of course, right here on the website at drstuspodcast.com. There are links for Dr. Stu's blogs. There is a link to the sanctuary. If you want to have more information, we're going to have in the future. Yeah, a guest and, and one on. of the nice things about the model that the sanctuary and, you know, I, again, I don't want to leave out any of my other colleagues who are practicing in this area in the midwifery sure. world. You know, that they do a more holistic approach to pregnancy. I mean, the sanctuary, for instance, has uh, lactation consultants. Mm -hmm. They have hip, medical hypnobirthing, not hypnobirthing, medical hypnotherapy. Hypnos yeah, medical hypnotherapy. Oh, wow. People we have. Um, we have. Uh, I'm sure a lot of homeopathic stuff therapists. going on, right? We have a naturopathic doctor. Yeah. We have uh, chiropractors that we sort of keep in-house or close by. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of one size at all. We have great classes. Uh, we have uh, postpartum classes. We have, you know, on, on Wednesdays when I'm there, there's a toddler class, and I just look into the classroom. They got <laughs> one of those gates up, like, you know, Randy might have up for uh, Jamie in a little bit or something, keep Jamie out of the bathroom or I've something. I've had them like, for my puppies. Right. Right. To keep it. They got She'll gates jump up. right over And the little, kids are, the little kids are like, they're between, uh, I guess, between one and three years old, and they're just running around there. And the moms are all sort of making a sense of community. They're, you know, there's, Los Angeles is a huge city, but a lot, there's not a lot of community sometimes. There's, you know, a lot of people don't know their neighbors. Yeah, right, right. And they don't know other people who are doing the same thing as them. Or if they are, they're so far away. Here's a sense of community. And people make lifelong friends because they attended the same childbirth class at the sanctuary or they came to the same mother-baby class. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, and, and while we might have lost that sense of community, I always talk about growing up back east, how there were neighborhoods, there were communities. You knew your neighbors. Today in our lives, as busy and hectic as they are, we have sometimes lost that. All too often we have lost that. But when that connection is made, when that neighborly hand or that community hand is stretched out in 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 
neighborly fashion, wow, it touches the heart. Nobody turns it away. I mean, people don't seek it, but when it comes to you, you say, wow, when you have that experience. Yeah, well, you know, feeling, feeling safe in your pregnancy or feeling safe as a new parent is... is uh, I imagine it's critical. Thank you for again, yeah. I, again I'm having But it's those, probably wonderful. Having one of those moments. But no, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's just it's one of those things that that is so fulfilling and it's so necessary and you know in in the old in the old uh my Back old in the practice, old country. No, in my oh, old practice okay. where I was doing my, you know the obstetrical model, you know people would come in, they'd sit in the waiting room for 40 I'd be running a half hour behind. They'd sit in the waiting room, you know, they'd come in, they'd have the 5-minute visit, they'd check out and they'd be gone. And they, you know, they wouldn't be, there'd be no sense of community in that office at yeah, all right. with anybody else. And th- that couple may have a childbirth class at Cedars. Another couple may be taking a private childbirth class. There, there's, there's no contact between the two of them. Mm. And by the way, when you have contact with a group of people, then there sometimes common questions come up. Sure. And you can answer questions in a group setting. Uh, that is, there are a few doctors out there that are doing this, and I think it's great. I think the group setting is oftentimes much more comfortable than a one-on-one setting. Yeah, if doctors even once a month would do it with all their pregnant ladies from from you know six weeks to thirty-eight weeks, forty weeks could come in for an hour. It's a great a, idea on a Saturday morning or Friday or Thursday afternoon, and and sit in the waiting room and have the doctors sit there and answer questions. That would be great. There are some doctors that are beginning to understand that, but again. We get back to the original topic of our conversation at the beginning. The medical model that's coming out of of the HMO system and the Obamacare system is not going to nurture that. There's going to be no reimbursement for that. And and if if the government has its way, the doctor won't even be able to charge for that time. And we will uh, continue to talk about Obamacare and pine for the days of Marcus Welby as we do It's Obamacare everywhere, every day, all day. Well, it's important. Well, it is important. And you know what? I know that it's dominating the podcast these days, but... You know, there's so much news coming out every day, sure. and I just find that a lot of my friends and stuff don't really pay much attention to what's going on in the news, and I really want them to understand where we're going, because if you don't understand it, it's going to slip by you, and suddenly you're going to say, what happened? Right, right. What happened? And you might even say How it like happen? that. You might even say it in that high pitch. What happened? What happened? Right. You might even say it just like that. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast. If you have a question... Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. Always a pleasure to spend time with you, my friend. Thank you, Brian. Send those emails, guys, because I really do want to answer questions that you want to hear. We appreciate it. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give them five stars and write a nice review. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman on Dr. Stu's podcast. <laughs>